And it is finally here at the end of the week. We are going to experience the 23rd Olympic Winter Games. The Pyeongchang uh, County is going to host in South Korea these 23rd Olympics. And it's going to have athletes and coaches, fans from around the world. They're all in the process of converging. And really, it's not only going to be an amazing display of athletic achievement, but it's also a display of culture. One of the things that's fascinating about the Olympics is you've got people from all these different countries with different languages, diets, flags, customs, uh, dress, and it's all kind of put on display. And it's really fun to watch and you get to appreciate what you're seeing because there are these cultural distinctives that are on display. Now, you don't have to go all the way to South Korea to the Olympics to actually see cultural distinctives. Literally, literally like when our student ministries go to a conference or they go on a mission trip, when they go outside of Texas, other people actually encounter them and see some differences in them. For instance, they pick up that they've got a Texas accent. I'm like, hey, could you say this for us? And they kind of listen, they record it. They, uh, you know, we as Texans, we've got our own vocabulary. We have certain words like fixin' and y'all, and we just kind of use that. And, you know, if you're a transplant and try to figure that out, you need some of these words defined for you, like fixin'. What does that really mean? And then even when it comes to fashion, like our girls sometimes wear cowboy boots with shorts. And I just want you to know not the rest of the country is styling like we are, right? You know, so you just need to understand there are distinctives that come with being a Texan. And I tell you all this because you need to understand there are just some distinctives that come with walking in God's wisdom. God fully intends that his wisdom is going to be put on display. You're going to find that the wisdom of God has uh, a way of becoming evident in a person's life. God just doesn't want you to know about wisdom. He doesn't want you just to understand truth. He wants you to live it. That's why he's given it. And he's even given your, his spirit so that can become a reality in your life. So what are some practical ways that wisdom is manifested in a person's life? That's why the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is so very important. I'm really glad that you're here to take this all in because he's going to spell it out. What does the wisdom of God look like on display? And the very first point you're going to see, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1, is that the wisdom of God brings joy with vitality. Take a look. He says, who is like the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. And so he asked this rhetorical question, who is like the wise person that really can understand a matter and that understands its interpretation? And the answer is there's no one like the person who has wisdom because wisdom sets apart an individual. And he, he's talking about the fact that wisdom gives skill for life. That's what hokma means, gives skill for living. It's the ability to go into a chaotic situation and bring about order. Wisdom is actually allows you to take like raw materials and fashion them and form them into something that is beautiful and constructive to go into a difficult relationship or a problem that exists and to bring order and health and maybe even make things better than they ever were before. And and he says in chapter eight, verse one, that it is a person's wisdom that illumines him and causes his stern face to shine. Literally, God's wisdom allows you to enjoy life and to enjoy people. Literally, where you come to a place where you can build others up. And there is nothing like wisdom. 
we think that, well, if you got money or you're good looking or you've got power, you got the nice position or you got the raise, or you got the corner office uh, on the skyscraper, that that's where you're going to find life satisfaction. That's really what gives your life meaning. And Solomon says, listen, I have tried all of those things. God not only gave me wisdom beyond any other, I had immeasurable resources at my disposal and none of those things actually mattered. They all led to vanity of vanities. It's not until you come to a place where you fear God. The beginning of wisdom is Proverbs 9, chapter 9, verse 10, is what? Anybody know? It is the fear of God. Where you get to a place where you reverence, obey, serve, and enjoy God. And what happens is when you walk in God's wisdom, it has a way of showing up on your face. I mean, think about it. If you know why you're here what you are to do, where you came from, where you're going, how the sin issues in your life are resolved, where you've got relationship with the living God, it is meant to put joy on your face. You have what other people do not have. And I just want to ask you, what is showing on your face? Is it stern? Maybe you need a little bit more of wisdom because when wisdom is known, enjoyed, experienced, it gets expressed like it says in verse one your wisdom illumines a person it even shows up on your face you see what happens is wisdom gives you a stability in life god's word gives you perspective you can handle a variety of situations difficulties in relationship you know how to walk with god you understand where you're going why you're here how to have healthy relationships how to work with your kids how to treat your spouse how to even interface with your enemy what to do at work how to represent yourself in school god actually reveals these truths in his word and when they're practiced the soul of the believer experiences joy and it's a joy that is expressed and you're like okay i want wisdom where do i get it you get it from trusting god you get it from being a person in the word. Reading the Bible isn't like, well, it's just a discipline that you're supposed to do as a Christian. Reading the Bible is word is the word of God for your soul. It feeds it. It gives you direction, encouragement, and fills your life with worship. You can ask God for wisdom and he'll give it. And it'll be really helpful if you've got a few friends that actually are growing in the wisdom of God like you are. All of this cultivates wisdom and it is expressed in your life. And I want you to know that our lives got, have challenges. Every one of us is going through difficulties at times. There is drama. There are unknowns and there are mysteries. And I have found that most people do not have a means of recalibrating their soul amidst the fog of life. I want to give you my, my very best tool on how to do that. I've got a personal mission statement. I review it about once a day. If I find myself where I feel like I'm kind of upside down and things are kind of confusing and I'm not sure exactly what to do, I go back to this personal mission statement. I say it and I pray it. It, it takes maybe a minute, but I feel like I've got clarity moving forward. And I'll just give it to you. It's simply this, to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. To walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. And you're like, whoa, that's a lot like our church's mission statement. Absolutely. Because I want a high degree of alignment with where we're going and how I'm living. And friends, I want you to know that when you have a means of focusing back on God's wisdom, it'll show up in your life.
church I came from years ago in Portland, Oregon, the senior pastor's mother took an interest in me. I don't know if she realized this kid needs a lot of help. Um, his grandparents don't seem to be around. He's a new Christian. And so she would just tell me different things and kind of talk with me. And she was very helpful. And, and one of the things that she told me is talking about people as they get older. And she told me, Grant, listen to this. Growing older will make you either bitter or sweeter. And I want you to know, having been a pastor now for several years, I can see that. I want you to know you're on a trajectory, either bitterness or sweetness. And a lot has to do with what you're doing with the wisdom of God. When you enjoy it, you're in it, you're treasuring it, you're sharing it, you're experiencing it. It's going to be expressed. And what will it look like? It'll have that smile of confidence and contentment in Christ. And by the way, when you see older saints in our church, would you go up to them and thank them for their smile? You know, as you get older, your body hurts in ways that you can't ever even imagine. And it's just downright humbling sometimes. And we'll not get into all the challenges that are being experienced. But it, I'll tell you what, to say, listen, thank you for your smile, for expressing wisdom and showing me what it looks like to love Jesus at every season of life. You see, when you're walking in God's wisdom, you know what happens? There is a joy with vitality that comes. Look at verses 2 through 6. Let me show you else. When you are experiencing the wisdom of God, when you're growing in it, it'll give you respect for authority. Beginning in verse 2 all the way through 6, he's going to be talking about showing respect for governing authorities. And all of a sudden, that smile that was on your face, some of you are like, what? It's gone away. you got to be kidding. The government and all their overreach. Oh, makes me mad. And it shows up on your face. This, by the way, before we leave that point, how do you want to be remembered by your kids and your grandkids? When they think of you, oh yeah, mom, dad, grandparent, hmm, you know, they're just regretting through life. Or do you want to be remembered for there was a joy and a confidence and a contentment in Christ? And when he talks about how you handle yourself in governing authorities, this is another place where the rubber meets the road. This is the king telling you how to get along with the king. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the commandment, command of the king because of the oath before God. He's saying you want to keep God's command. And you recognize that God is the, the ultimate authority and he gives authority to individuals and governments. And because you've made an oath to God of allegiance to his authority, he wants you to actually carry it out even in the authorities that are over you. And now I know a lot of you are very troubled now and you're like, what in the world? And he's going to actually talk about how difficult that can be. Look at verse three. He says, do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter for he will do whatever he pleases. Now, you and I, Western culture, we're not so familiar with kings that are evil, okay? Uh, you need to understand in biblical times, even with some of these despotic leaders that we have in the world, they deal in life and death. The king having a bad day could end up with a lot of people dying that day. And he says, you want to be very careful how you handle yourself. Verse 3, don't be in a hurry to leave him. Like, you think you're going to storm out and make a scene? Uh, or you're going to actually rebel. Look what he says in verse 3. Do not join in an evil matter, for he'll do whatever he pleases. There's some folks that are pretty mad at the government or the king, and so they're going to rebel and revolt. He says, hey, you want to be really careful how you handle yourself. 
And look what he says in verse 4. He says, since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Be careful with who you're dealing with, especially if they're difficult and maybe even unprincipled individuals. And if you're thinking like, well, that was in the Old Testament. We can do things the American way, right? I want you to know that if you're a Christian, God has a corollary to that. Let me give it to you. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. He says, I want you to obey. I want you to handle yourself with wisdom. And when he talks about, for he'll do whatever he pleases, uh, sometimes this is going to be unpleasant. Government and their rules and their regulations and their laws. And you might be wondering, is there any time where you can say, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. And the answer to that question is only one. When a law or something that has been told to you to do something that is in direct violation with what is clear in the word of God on that point and that point alone, you must obey conscience rather than men. You need a Bible verse on that? Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that's what the disciple apostles said. We must obey God rather than men. And it is only on that point. And let me encourage you, do so. If you ever have to, if you're ever in that situation, do it with wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. There is a proper time and a procedure, but what you're going to need is wisdom. Hey, I'd like to make your life easier and frankly, even more enjoyable. And you might even save some money. You ready? Just obey the laws. Pretty simple. Let me just tell you, like, for instance, if you drive the speed limit, some of you, this is going to be a revelation. If you drive the speed limit, you don't have to worry about speed traps, you know? So like you're trying to make your way to college station and you know how it is. I think you're supposed to be like, what is it? 70 miles an hour. And then you get to some of these like Hearn and Calvert and it goes down to 30, you know, and they're like hitting the brakes and they're waiting for you. You know what I'm saying? Well, listen, if you actually follow the speed limit, you don't have to worry about that. Listen, if you pay your taxes... You don't have to worry about it when the IRS says, hey, we're going to audit you and like they're going to scare you to death. Well, you know what? I actually am doing it right. I mean, the same is true with your work life. Listen, just do your job with integrity. Not like oh, the boss is coming. Everybody quick. Act like you're busy, you know, and you're playing with your computer and get some pencils out and stuff. No, you just do your job like you're supposed to do it. You don't have to worry about these things. And he says, listen, when it comes to the government, when it comes to a king. When it comes to authority, don't be an impulsive person that overreacts and storms out like, oh, I'll show them. Actually, it's probably going to make matters worse for you. And certainly don't be in one of those like, well, we're going to just join in the rebellion. We're not sure what we're rebelling about, but we're sure mad about it. There was a minor point that we had disagreed with. So that justifies my entire behavioral patterns of being in opposition to the government authorities. I don't think so. You might want to consult the book of Ecclesiastes. There is a proper time and a procedure. And this, by the way, is illustrated by several Old Testament believers. 
I've got to think that in the forefront of Solomon's mind would be his dad. You remember his dad, King David? I mean, King David was a good guy, was really helpful uh, to Saul, the first king of Israel. I mean, he killed Goliath and he was a great military warrior. And, you know, that was all good initially. But then when Saul started like listening in the radio and the top 40 was this song about David killing his tens of thousands and Saul may have done something with his life. You know, that made him arrogantly prideful, mad. You know, he was like, whoa, that's not the way it should be. I'm the star of the show. And uh, all of that arrogance and that pride, it led to him, you know, persecuting the very guy that would like sing him songs and try to calm him down and was this great military victor for him. And Saul actually hunted him down with his own army. You remember that scene in First Samuel chapter 24? I mean, Saul's with his army out hunting down David. He stops at one of those rest areas. This one happened to be a cave. He's in the cave relieving himself. I won't know, go into great detail. And guess who else is in the cave? David! And David could have taken him out just right there. Could have killed him. I mean, if he was ruled by his feelings, his circumstances, or his peers, he would have. But he was being governed by wisdom. I'll tell you, that's what poise, self-control, composure, wisdom on display looks like. He says, you know what? I am not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, even if he's trying to kill me. Take that on. For the American mindset. Let's get things in perspective. You can't control everything in life and that's okay. You can't even control the government. That's okay. Where you can step in, where you can be involved, when you can vote, do it. But leave the matters that you can't control with God. Remember a guy by the name of Nehemiah? And you know, he was aware of the walls that needed of Jerusalem. They're in total disrepair. Jerusalem was, in, it was a mess. And it really bothered him. Nehemiah's chapter one and two. And he's praying about it and thinking about what should I do? But he didn't he wasn't so sure that the king would be all that favorable to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he waited and prayed. And then God gave him the opportunity and he presented his request with wisdom, with grace, with humility, with deference. And the king said, you know, I think that is a pretty good idea. How about I fund the project? And Nehemiah operated with wisdom. Remember a guy by the name of Daniel? Uh, the Babylonians came and they kind of overtook um, uh, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. They hauled off all the smartest boys and girls to Babylon because they're going to brainwash them before they bring in a whole bunch of the other Israelites. And remember in Daniel chapter 1, they're, they're feeding these, all these kids uh, the food of the king himself. And Daniel and his friends are like, man, we're not supposed to be eating this stuff. And Daniel approached the guy that was running the brainwashing show and said, hey, listen. This is all, you know, very nice, and, and the food looks wonderful and stuff. It's just that, you know, we're not supposed to be eating all this ham and pork chops that you're putting in front of us. And I'll tell you what, could we do this? Just let's try this for 10 days. We're going to go on the Daniel diet. We're just going to be eat, like, just, just feed us vegetables and water. And in 10 days, let's see who's fatter, like us, the test case, or everybody else. You know, if you're on the Daniel diet, I mean, they're still writing books about this today. You should be getting fatter. Okay, that is the Daniel diet. And so, 10 days later, guess who's fatter? Daniel and the gang that's eating the law, the food prescribed by the law given by God. And you know what? Eventually, Daniel and his friends become high um, position officials in the actual court of the king of Babylon. 
Friends, this is handling yourself with wisdom. You even see this in the New Testament. You've got like the apostles. You remember uh, the Jewish leadership is persecuting them and arresting them illegally. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, you see this, but they handle themselves with grace and with wisdom. Friends, that's what is needed. You know, I want you to understand it is not easy to live a consistent Christian life in a complicated, evil world. And what we need is wisdom. And God will give it. You're like, really? Give me a verse on it. I will. James chapter 1, verse 5. It says this. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to them. You want it? God says, you ask me. You come to me, and I'll give it. You're involved and living either working for a government that's evil or a citizen of one in a government that's just really, frankly, not your cup of tea. God says, you need wisdom, and I'll give it to you. By the way, can God take out a ruler who is wicked anytime he wants to? Yes, he can. Remember Daniel chapter 5? There's a guy by the name of Belshazzar. To kind of give you this uh, wickedness of this particular king in Babylon. Uh, he's throwing a party. You know, he's, he's mocking Yahweh, the God of Israel. Remember, they had already taken all the utensils out of the temple, ransacked the place. He says, hey, why don't you bring all that stuff out because we're going to use it in our party. And, you know, and they're feasting away and drinking themselves into oblivion. And they're mocking God. And they're drinking out of the utensils that have been used for sacrifices. And all of a sudden, in the midst of their party, this hand appears. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And there's like this writing from this hand that's appearing on this wall. It's rather disturbing. And the king's like, whoa, what is it? I don't know. No one can read it. The queen has to intervene and say, you know, there's a guy that who's got a lot of wisdom. His name is Daniel. You call him by another name. But listen, I want you to know that guy's got wisdom. If you really want to know because that's really freaking you out. Why don't you go ask him? He probably will be able to answer that for you. So they haul Daniel in. And sure enough, Daniel says, okay, you want to know what's going on? Let me tell you what this says. It says, Belshazzar, you've basically been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting and your kingdom is going to the Medes. And guess what? That night, that is exactly what happened. The Babylonian Empire falls and the Medes and the Persians take over. Can God take out an Osama bin Laden or, Hus- or a Saddam Hussein? Absolutely. Anytime he wants. He's patient. He's long-suffering. But he is in total control. And I just want to ask you this question. As you kind of think about your situation, whether it's with the government or just even your life situation. If you're going through great struggles right now, how much of your difficulties involve Things that you can't change and how much involves things that you can for that which you can change you can be involved in like do whatever you can but for the rest once you've been able to distinguish that you must leave it in the sovereign and good hand of God and after all that's what wisdom does wisdom of God brings joy with vitality it brings a respect for authority, and let me show you something else. It brings stability in uncertainty. Look at verse 7 and following. He says, If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? If no one knows who, what's going to happen, who can say when it's going to happen? I mean, no one knows. 
There's so much uncertainty. And he's going to go on in verses 8 through 11 to just kind of like start listing some of these uncertainties. Look at verse 8. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. There's just no one that can control the wind. So go fly your kite in it, but you can't control it. Or no one has authority over the day of death. No, it's God's actually numbered your days. It's in his book. And there's no discharge in the time of war. You can't be in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war, and say, you know what? I think I'd like to go see my mom and eat her cookies. No, get back out there and fighting. You just can't do that. And furthermore, and he says, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. And this was obviously very perplexing because Solomon had obviously seen a lot of evil being perpetrated on individuals and the harm. And what he's saying there is you cannot escape the consequences of evil. He said, verse nine, he says, all this I have seen. I applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Man, I really tried to figure this out. I saw the evil that was being thrust upon these individuals. But you need to know that you can never escape the consequences of evil. Man, this brings about a great degree of uncertainty in life. And then notice what he says in verse 10. And so then I've seen the wicked buried and those who used to go in and out of from the holy place. And they're soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. I mean, to make even life more uncertain. He says, you know, I've seen wicked people. They die. They're buried. They're forgotten. He says, I've seen folks that are reverent. They actually know God. They worship him. They go to the holy place. Speaking of the, the temple itself, they worship with sincerity. They know God. Guess what? They're buried and they're soon forgotten. He says, this is all futility. And then he says, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. He says, not only does it matter, doesn't seem to matter when you die or not for remembered very long. He says, there is great injustice in our land and the punishment of criminals is just not happening. He says in verse 11, the endless delays of trials and punishment of criminals serve only to encourage the lawlessness and create contempt for the judicial system. And I want you to know something, you know, like in this country, I believe that every defendant should get a just and a fair trial. I mean, that is actually one of the privileges of living in this country. But what Solomon is after here is that it is possible to overprotect the criminal at the expense of the victim. Fair and impartial justice meted out promptly serves as a deterrent to crime. The idea that, well, you commit a crime and then maybe several years later we'll have a trial, but then there's going to, well, we're going to appeal that because we didn't like the decision or wait, you know, we're not quite ready. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, just think about some things that are going on in our own community. Well, the folks that are kind of into doing evil and they don't really care too much about the law, they're like, doesn't seem to matter. You can get away with it. And if you can't, you do get caught. It gets strung on forever. You just kind of keep appealing that. And he's saying, you know what? This leads to a great degree of uncertainty. But I want you to understand something. There is stability in the midst of uncertainty. And I'll tell you where you find it. Look at verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him 
openly. This is where you find it. It it may look like the evil guy is getting away with it and he's living a long life. No, 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 no. That's an illusion. He's going to address it in the next verse. But he says, I want you to know those who fear God, I know it will be well for them. It'll be well for your soul. Oftentimes, it'll be well for your circumstances. This is where you find stability. Fear of God, reverencing him, obeying him, enjoying him, serving him. He says, friends, that is where you're going to find stability in the midst of all the uncertainties of life. And then, you know, these folks that are doing all this evil and it looks like, well, their life doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Look at verse 13. But it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. It'll be well for you if you walk in wisdom. You got stability. But for the folks that do evil and they could care less, it's not going to be well. In fact, he says, it'll be like a shadow of their life. You know, it's interesting. As the sun starts setting, have you ever noticed that your shadow gets bigger? Sometimes I, I go running where and the sun's setting and I look at my shadow and like, there's this giant gangly like giant out there. It's not pretty. I have to run in the country and stuff like that. But the shadow is huge. I look like something out of a sci-fi movie or something like that. But it's like only because the sun is setting and my shadow is made bigger and larger and longer. But eventually the sun sets and it goes into total darkness. So it is for the one who does evil, who has never come to a place where they fear God and trust in his son. It looks like you're getting away with it. But what's happening is your shadow is going to flow into total darkness. Uh, There's a, I think some of you are familiar with the Soviet dictator, um, Joseph Stalin. Uh, Talk about a guy who was utterly evil. Historians believe that he was ultimately responsible for the deaths of, get this, 20 to 25 million people. He created repression and discrimination for at least 60 million people. This guy is the essence of evil. When he dies, his daughter actually recounts this in a conversation. His daughter, uh, Svetlana Stalin, said this. Her dad, uh, as he's laying on his deathbed, was just plagued by what she called hallucinations. And it was just tormenting him. And then she says, finally, at one point, He like rises up in his bed and he shakes his fist and then immediately just drops back dead. Friends, this is defiance. This is the shake your fist at God. I'm going to be evil to the end. Friends, you do not want to go there. I know that it is popular to think, well, after all, you can be the master of your soul and the captain of your life, the Lord of your life. You can control your own destiny. You can do it your way. Friends, I've got news for you. Your shadow's getting longer. This is the way of foolishness and despair. The path of wisdom is to trust God and to fear him. Remember what Jesus said? He just says, ask this question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Are you after the things that Solomon said? It's all vanity. You think that's what's going to make you important and make you feel satisfied and fulfilled? You're mistaken. You are forfeiting your soul if you will not trust in God. And when he's talking about stability in the midst of uncertainty, look at verse 14 to drive home the point. We can have stability even in the incomprehensible inequities of life. Look at verse 14. 
There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say this too is futility. There are some just enigmatic things that are happening in this world. There are like criminals who get shot and they sue the city and they make a bunch of money. On the other hand, there are folks like maybe you're driving home from church and you're a nice Christian family and you're trusting in God and you get hit by a drunk driver and you're all dead. There are missionaries that are martyred. There are babies that are aborted. And sometimes it just does not make any sense. There is a great degree of uncertainty in this life. You just don't know how it's going to all work out. That's why Solomon is writing. He's saying you can find stability even in the midst of uncertainty. It comes from fearing God. And it's almost like now he's like pushed this to the ultimate end. And there's this radical gear shift in verse 15. Look at this. So verse 15, I commended pleasure for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. He's saying in the midst of all the uncertainty and all the mystery, enjoy God. Enjoy just even the simple blessings of life. What you're eating, what you're drinking. In fact, he actually says you should be just downright merry, glad, joyful in heart. This isn't the hedonistic philosophy like eat, drink, you know, and be merry. It doesn't matter how you live. No, this is the God-centered approach that says, I see God as the giver of all good things. Like he says in 1 Timothy 6, he has given me all things to enjoy. I love God and I am grateful for that which he has given. And even though I don't understand everything and I've got a lot of unknowns and problems and drama, I've got God, I've got certainty, and I can have joy and delight even in the little things. I have found this. Being thankful makes life joyful. If you're here today and you're kind of pretty much scowling through life, you know, you're not a real happy individual, just try this. For this week, try to be as thankful as possible. And let's see if you don't find joy just skyrocketing in your life. After all, that's what he wants. Eat, drink, be merry, because God has given this to you under the sun. And so he says in verse 16, he found stability even living with mystery. Look at verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night. So he's like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to apply myself. I'm not going to sleep. I'm just going to focus on this. Verse 17 And I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. There is just some things that are not comprehensible. And we need to learn to live with that. It's kind of like this. The person who thinks he's got to know everything or she's got to have it all figured out before she's really going to be at peace in life, you're in for a rude awakening. You cannot figure it all out. I don't care how smart you are. You cannot figure it all out. God doesn't expect us to know the unknowable. Let me give you one of my favorite Bible verses. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It simply says this. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed to us 
and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. God doesn't expect you to know the unknowable. He expects you to trust in and believe that which he's revealed. That's the question. There's a French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, and I'm sure you're familiar with him. In his Ponces, he wrote in 446 this. Listen to this. If there were no obscurity, man would not feel his corruption. If there were no light, man would not hope for a cure. Thus, it is not only right but useful for us that God should be partly concealed and partly revealed. Since it is equally dangerous for a man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness as to know his wretchedness without knowing God. God has given us enough knowledge of our wretchedness and sin and enough knowledge about the wonders and the beauty and the grace of the Savior that we can exercise faith and believe. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. You see that? So that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. It is a changed life through a transformed heart. You don't earn it. It's not like being wise or being good that that's how you get salvation. It is by exercising faith in God who shows us that we are not. And so he says in chapter 9, verse 1, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that right, explain if that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. What he's saying is, listen, what I have found is this. You're righteous with you're righteous. You're right with God because you have faith in him. You're wise because you're walking his wisdom. You need to know you are safe in the hand of God. To be secure in the hand of God means that God is in control. He possesses you. He knows you. And even the unpredictable events of life cannot throw you because he's got you. It's kind of like this. He wants you to be resting in this promise. I do not know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And when he talks about you don't know if it's going to be love or hatred, in Hebrew they would take opposite extremes and put them together to say to basically uh, speak of everything. And he says, listen, trust in the Lord, walk in wisdom, and he's got you. And you can rest in that. You can have stability. Even in the midst of uncertainty, friends, that is the path of wisdom. Did you know that there are um, world puzzle championships uh, this year, in case you're wondering where to go? In 2018, it's going to be in Prague in the Czech Republic. And so you've got all these people that do, you know, crossword puzzles and uh, Sudoku, you know, and these puzzles. And they all gather together and they have these competitions. Apparently, these people, like, just live this. Even for the few hours they're sleeping, they dream about doing puzzles. And did you know that around the world, hundreds of millions of people do puzzles? Now, uh, in an article, uh, there was a guy by the name of Will Schertz. He's the crossword editor of the New York Times and NPR. And he was asked why puzzles are so popular around the world. This is what he said. We're faced with problems every day in life, and we almost never get clarity. We jump into the middle of a problem. We carry it through to whatever extent we can find an answer. And then we just find the next thing. But with a human-made puzzle, you have the satisfaction of being completely in control. You start the challenge from the beginning, and you move all the way to the end. And that's a satisfaction you don't get much in real life. You feel in control, and that's a great feeling. 
Now, if you haven't started doing puzzles, don't start now. It'll probably just add to your frustration. But that's why people do puzzles. Like, finally, there's just one thing in my unsettled life that I've got all the answers to, and it's done, and it's complete. I just want you to know, that's not how it works with God. There's going to be a lot of mystery. There is uncertainty. But what you can have is trusting Him. And when you do, and you walk in God's wisdom, you know what happens? There is a joy with vitality. There is a respect for authority. And there is a stability in uncertainty. And friends, this is what the world needs to see. Contagious Christianity put on display. And when we do, the wisdom of God has a way of becoming evident in the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. How you've given it out in such clear, easy-to-understand phrases and words what it means to put your wisdom on display. And Lord, if there is someone here today with, who has heard these words and recognizes that their life is like the opposite of wisdom, they have sinned greatly and they need forgiveness, would they pray with me and say, Lord, today I put my trust in Jesus, the perfect one. I need not only understanding of life, I need forgiveness of my sins. And I believe that Christ paid for him on the cross, and I believe today. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to walk in your wisdom in evident ways, in ways that it even shows up on our face for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.